Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Today is the day. <laughs> Wednesday, December 8th, uh, 2021. We are close to the end of the year. Can't believe it. Uh, as a reminder, we are on unsafespace.com always. That's the best way to find us. Our streams are embedded there. So even if we get banned or suspended, we will always make sure that that's where they are. Uh, so, you, But you can see us on YouTube, Utreon, Odyssey, I think DLive. I might be forgetting one, but I don't think so. I think, uh, I think that's all of them. Also, as a reminder, we are perpetually at a war with Susan Mojiki from YouTube. Uh, we're warring over the subscribe button. She likes to unsubscribe people unbeknownst to them. So even if you think you're subscribed, go jab that subscribe button. Join the battle, give her some hell, and uh, and help us out. I'd like to do a quick shout out to everyone who supports the show financially. Um, get your name in the credits, cool grenade mugs and stuff, depending on your level of support. We couldn't do this show without you or any of the stuff that we do uh, without your support. And it does mean a lot to have to have help fighting the culture war. If you want to support the show, you can go to unsafespace.com, buy merch. Donate, subscribe, whatever. All right. Um, <laughs> Finest City Cycling in chat says, there's a mandatory subscribe mandate. Yes, I forget. Usually Carrie likes to, she's the one who likes to do the mandates a little bit more than me. But yes, there's a, definitely a mandate. And um, it's for your own safety, really, that you subscribe. So there's a new variant to the channel. It's called the Omicron variant. And if you don't subscribe, uh, who knows what will happen to you. By the way, before we do anything else in the show, uh, <clears throat> so I have this this super chat management tool that I wrote that pulls super chats in. And this I wrote it primarily for a coffee break, just so that uh, if they scroll by and we lost them, we still had a collection of our super chats. And I always have it loaded up whenever we go live, but it holds the super chats from previous shows. So when I opened it up today, there was at least one, maybe two that we missed from uh, Monday's Kofefi break. And I'm not going to read both of them, but one of them actually <laughs> is oddly enough uh, kind of in line with the theme of today's dangerous thoughts. So this is from Dominic Falcone, probably not even here right now, but that's okay. Dominique, I don't even know who Dominique is asking this question to, probably... Uh, I mean, probably Ellen, but I'm not sure. She was our guest on Monday. He says, can you define more specifically what it is that is equal in or about men and women? In other words, define equal. Equal by what measurement? That's an awesome question. I'm not going to define it. It's not addressed at me, and it's a long thing that's kind of unrelated to what we're talking about uh, specifically. But it is related in that... Uh, People don't often know what the hell they're talking about. They use words that are these floating abstractions, which is the theme of tonight's show, floating abstractions. They use these words, they use floating abstractions, and uh, they don't really know what they're talking about. They sound nice. I believe in equality. What does that mean? I don't know. How are they equal? I don't know. They're equal, except for they're not equal. They don't have an answer. So um, it's a great question, actually. Tom's giving people shit in chat already. All right. 
So welcome everyone. Welcome everyone in chat. This show, as I mentioned tonight, is going to be about floating abstractions. So I just, I decided to compile. I didn't actually use this uh, equal or equity or any kind of, I didn't use that any variant of that as, as one of the floating abstractions that I ran across, but I just compiled the list of floating abstractions that I ran across this past week that I thought caused confusion or trouble. And I'm just going to walk through them and then we'll do a little discussion about ethics. Uh, but mostly we're going to talk about floating abstractions because I realized that uh, sometimes we just, we have abstract conversations, but then it helps to maybe apply some of these and see, um, to the application of philosophy. So what are floating abstractions? Let's start with that. So um, the origin, at least as far as I know, the origin of this term, it's come from Ayn Rand, but it might not. It might come from somewhere else. Um, it might be Aristotle, and I missed it. Um, but floating abstractions are abstract concepts that are not tethered to concretes. So if you think about the conceptual hierarchy that we've talked about in the past, um, yeah, you can have really abstract concepts, right? But you should be able to follow those concepts through a chain down to a concrete thing in reality, right? And it's that tether that lets you know that your concept is actually a thing related to reality and not just some crap you made up or something that you don't know what you're talking about. It's just ill-defined and vague. So tethering your concepts to reality is really important. And most people have an easy time doing this with relatively low-level concepts that are not very far removed from concretes. So the concept of furniture is a great example, right? Uh, you can think of the concept of furniture and think, okay, well, I've got a bunch of sub-concepts. There's tables and chairs and desks and sofas and dressers. Okay, and whatever else fits in that category. Um, but there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit in that category. Cars, breakfast cereals, computers, iPhones, whatever. So you kind of have, you have those, but then a level down from those concepts, you basically right away, I mean, unless you're into home design, you might have another abstract subcategory of, of furniture beyond that. If you're someone like me, you don't really have really many different classifications for sofas. You just see a sofa and you're like, that's a sofa. It belongs to this category, right? So um, so basically one level of abstraction down, you hit concretes right away. You hit tethers to reality. And you're in, you know, you walk in the kitchen and you're like, that's a table. That's my kitchen table. That belongs to the category of table. And that's a table at a restaurant. And that's a table in the office. And those are all tables. And it's very clear. And you're only, you know, that abstract concept is, is very close to um, to the concrete the concept of furniture is just one up from there. It's pretty easy. You got a good tether. Um, maybe a more difficult one, a slightly, <laughs> not just slightly, a much more abstract concept. It might be like the concept of ownership, for example. Um, and I want to talk about this one primarily because of an article that Tim Poole tweeted the other day, which I'll share with you. But um, ownership, private property, they're related, right? What's this concept of ownership? Well, you could say, okay, well, ownership is the universal right to possess or use or dispose of or transfer things, right? It's kind of a relationship to things, right? Um, and for each of those verbs, use it, possess it, 
dispose of it, transfer that kind of stuff. Um, there's a there's a ownership could apply to a bunch of different items. So it could apply to land and houses and factories and clothing and food and phones and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you could, if you wanted to really look at ownership at a concrete level, you could look at the concretes that belong that that this would apply to and say, well, how would I apply these these unilateral rights to do these verbs to this thing to a particular thing. So if it's a house, like how would I use a house? Well, what are the ways I might live in it? I might paint it. Um, I might add or remove parts to it. I might reconfigure it. Um, assuming that the land is part of the house, I might do landscaping. How might you dispose of a house? Oh, you might burn it down. You might bulldoze it. <laughs> you might do lots of things with the house. Uh, how would you transfer a house? Well, you might sell it or rent it. Uh, so like partially tenant, that might also be a, a use scenario or you might partition it and give, sell parts of it or give parts of it away or whatever. So having an understanding of that's what it means to own a house um, helps you identify when ownership is being violated, right? So it's ownership is not happening when someone else can take those actions without your consent on that item, whatever that item is, whether it's a sweater or a house or your bank account. Right, um, because because these are unilateral rights here. Um, sometime we'll talk about consent. I'm going to have a guy on uh, to talk about social contracts and consent at some at some point. He's agreed to do the show, but we'll skip that consent stuff for right now. So you you sometimes can appear to have a little bit of a superpower if your abstractions aren't floating. Because while everyone else is running around confused about the meaning and having confusing arguments about stuff, um, you can apply principles much easier when your principles are based on actual tethered abstractions and not floating ones, right? One of the worst things to have is a, is a principle that's based on floating abstractions because it's dangerous and it means nothing. So if, if you've got concepts that are tethered to reality and that are clear, and they're tied to concretes, and you know what those concretes are, and you can give examples. Someone asks you, you're like, yep, here's some examples. Um, then you do better. Because for most people, most relatively abstract concepts, once you get higher up that hierarchy, they don't really know what they mean when they say things like ownership or or consent, as I mentioned. Like They don't actually know what they mean. If you press them on it, they don't know. Um, and I'm going to bring up a story here, because this, this story just angered me. Um, it's, it's kind of tangentially related to ownership. Uh, but this is a story that I, I don't, I don't really watch Tim pool, but I do follow him on Twitter. Um, and he tweeted this out and I, I, there's nothing special about this story. Let me start by that. There's nothing special about the story. This happens all the time. And if you're not aware of it, I guess, shame on you. <laughs> um, but let's see, let's see if I can throw this up on the screen. Okay. The headline here is more than $100,000 seized after canine officer at Dallas Love Field Airport sniffs out bag. I love that they're blaming a dog, but or crediting a dog, I guess. So here's this, I can read the whole story. It's very short. On December 2nd, I'm oh, sorry, high praise for a canine officer at Dallas Love Field Airport after more than $100,000 was found in a passenger's luggage. On December 2nd, the canine, named Ballantine, alerted on an individual checked suitcase. 
it turned out the bag that belonged to a 25-year-old woman from Chicago who was on a layover to the airport at the airport contained blankets and two large bubble envelopes filled with $106,829 in cash. There's there's a picture for those of you watching. There's a picture of the cash. And uh, the police department, they're very excited. The police department uh, shared this on social media, looks like Facebook, and said, we need to get him some treats. He does it again. He stole some money for it. I'm sorry, I haven't. I'm skipping ahead of myself. He found some money for us. Um, it says the woman who owned the bag was not arrested, but the process was seized and police say the money was seized and the police say it will be subject to civil asset forfeiture process. Canine Valentine is part of the Dallas Love Field Interdiction Squad, which is unit of the Dallas Police Department's narcotics division. If you have two neurons, uh, civil asset forfeiture should piss you off. Um, for those of you who don't know what civil asset forfeiture is, um, I'm going to read from Wikipedia. It's a process in which law enforcement officers take assets from persons suspected of involvement with crime or illegal activity without necessarily charging the owners with wrongdoing. Sure. Uh, and this is my favorite explanation. Uh, this is my favorite part of the explanation here on Wikipedia. While civil procedure, as opposed to criminal procedure, generally involves a dispute between two private citizens, civil forfeiture involves a dispute between law enforcement and property, such as a pile of cash or a house or a boat, such that the thing is suspected of being involved in a crime. To get back the seized property, owners must prove it was not involved in criminal activity. So, uh, I see some people in chat saying theft. That's because you have a clear understanding of what ownership is. <laughs> and you read this and you see this and you say, well, that's theft. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is theft. Um, and I, I just, there's some things that I, I can only laugh at with respect to this definition of it's a dispute between law enforcement and property. I just have this image of like, first of all, it's a dog in this case. So like I have an image of like this dog in a dispute with a house. Like, how does that work? <laughs> like he's, he's mad at the cash. They're angry. The cash sits there. The dog yips. Cash sits there. Uh, like it's such a bizarre and retarded concept that, and first of all, and by the way, civil, civil law, right, is between private citizens. But in this case, they're they're acting like law enforcement is a private citizen. Why it's called civil asset forfeiture is beyond me. It's just to hide what it actually is. It should just be called cops steal shit. Um, and of course, then to get back your property, you have to prove it wasn't involved in criminal activity. So you are guilty until proven innocent. It's a it's a vile, despicable thing. And any police officer, whoever enforces this, is an absolute piece of shit. Absolute piece of shit. Uh, you don't back the blue when they do this kind of stuff. Uh, I know we have some back the blue type people that watch. This is why you don't back the blue. Because they enforce this kind of crap. And no upstanding person who wants to go out and support the Constitution and defend the Constitution would dare touch this crap with a 10-foot pole. They would quit before doing this. Only scumbags do this. Only scumbags enforce this. It is thuggery. So, uh, 
By the way, the person in chat who yelled theft asks if they get a cookie. Sure, you send me your address. I will send you a, a cookie. All right. But so if you're if you're like a normie who doesn't have a clear understanding of ownership, because clearly some people don't have a clear understanding of ownership. They don't see anything wrong with civil asset forfeiture, right? So we're the weirdos who think it's theft. Um, you might you wouldn't see this the, this as a violation of ownership, right? They they would look at it and say, well, you own the money, but also the police can seize it because drugs are bad, okay? Right? Like that would be their thought process. Uh, well, you own it, but also you don't hear some things that contradict your ownership, but drugs are bad. Like that's the thought process. It's really pathetic. Um, but it's not because they're dumb. It's because they don't have an they don't have a concrete understanding of what the hell it means to own something. Um, if you do have a clear understanding, um, then you look at this and you say, well, either two things are going on. Because so, so clearly the owner can't do the things that we just talked about. None of the concrete supply you can't possess, use, dispose of, like it's not there. Someone else is doing this. So either civil asset forfeiture is a violation of your ownership, theft, or there's an alternative. You never actually owned the property to begin with, even though you were told you owned it, you're just holding it for the state. And you're a serf working the land. And this is kind of what social contract theory will tell you in a way. It's, social contract theory is rationalization for a bunch of bullies and busybodies, right? Um, I remember when I first heard about, years ago, I first heard about how in China, I don't know if you guys know this, but in China, you can't, I, I, I don't know if this is true everywhere in China, but at least the cities that I was looking at, you can't actually buy real estate. You rent it from the government, you get a hundred year lease. So you buy it. It's like a prepaid lease. So if you're going to buy something, so you want to buy something in, in, I'm going to buy a condo in Shenzhen, probably cost you, I don't know, one or 2 million bucks. It's expensive in Shenzhen. Okay. Um, you spend that money and you get it for a hundred years. You get a hundred year lease. I'm not sure the details of how it works, but it's explicitly not ownership because the commies own everything, right? They own China. The CCP is like, well, you don't own anything. You don't even own your life. We own the condo, but you can, you know, you can have it for a hundred years. And I remember thinking how backwards that was. And then I bought a house in the Bay Area. Uh, and I'm not going to say what my property taxes are, but they are painful. <laughs> they are very high. I mean... I guess you could, if you worked a minimum wage job and took all of your money, you might be able to pay the taxes on my house. Like it's it, just taxes, just a tax, just a, just for sitting here doing nothing. And I thought to myself, well, it's not actually that different from China, right? I don't own this property. I mean, I feel like I own it, right? I paid a bunch of money for it. And here I sit and pay a gardener and, you know, have a house, <laughs> but. I don't really own it because if I don't pay my property taxes to the thugs down the street, they'll come take it. So I don't really own it. I'm kind of holding on to it for the thugs and the bullies. I don't, I don't really own it. It's sobering. <laughs>
uh, all right. So someone asked me in chat, when did I buy my house? Uh, I think like 2009, 2008, when the, remember the housing crisis, it was a, it's a good time to buy. That's when I bought. Uh, okay, so let's go through some. So I just wanted to, that was a kind of related to floating, floating abstractions, but I just wanted to get it off my chest because it really angers me. Civil asset forfeiture is despicable. And um, yeah, it just should not, nothing, it should not be tolerated. You should shame any cop who does this. You should try and get it eliminated in your town if you can. It's it's a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, all right. Let's go through, through some of the examples that I just ran across this week um, that made me stop and go, hmm. If you were just clear, a lot of effort would be saved. So um, the first few of these that we're going to go through are going to be short or easy, and they'll increase in depth. Here's one that I ran across this week. This is a sloppy one. It's common. It's usually harmless because most people know what you mean, but a lot of people conflate killing with murder. Right. And I'm and just to be clear, I'm not talking about legal definitions here. When whenever we're having whenever we're talking about philosophy together and someone like jumps in with a legal definition, just stop. Right? Just shut up. <laughs> Ethics are pre-law, not as in if they're going to grad school or undergrad trying to get into law school. Ethics uh ethics happen prior to a priori, they're prior to law. We need to work out ethical concepts before we decide how to codify things into a law, or even if we should have a law about that thing. We are not talking about the law. We are talking, I mean, we were just bitching about the law a moment ago, but we're, when we're having ethical and philosophical discussions, we're not talking about the law. We're talking about what's right and wrong. We're talking about morals, right? Or we're talking about some other aspect of philosophy. It's not until we get into politics which relies on ethics, that then we can start talking about legal definitions and, and what that should look like legally. So if you are one of those nitpickers who's like, legally, blah, 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 shut up. Um, so people conflate killing with murder. Um, and both, you know, both killing and murder should be tied to concrete actions. You should have ideas in your head, like images, like this is what that is. Um, which actions would count as killing, which actions would count as murder. And if you fail to have those clearly defined in your head and you fail to know what those concretes are, you can get confused. And you can say things like killing someone is wrong, which is not true. Killing someone is not wrong. Um, and I'm going to bring up an example, another example that's pissing me off. Uh, Dan, Dan Trainer says, thou shalt not kill law. Yeah, I know I'm not talking about biblical law, although... The Bible doesn't have much to do with philosophy, but yes, I'm talking about legal. You know what I'm talking about. All right. Another story that pissed me off recently. John Hurley. Johnny Hurley, I guess it was his, he was called. He's an ANCAP dude uh, in Arvada, Colorado. He... Uh, not really my kind of ANCAP dude in the sense that we could get along and, and live in ANCAPistan together or whatever, but, you know, he was much more of the, the crunchy granola hippie kind of guy, but an ANCAP. 
Uh, and, uh, and, you know, maybe we'd be friends on him probably, but this guy, Johnny Hurley, he saved the lives of a bunch of cops in Arvada. He was then killed by, by a cop. Um, but there was a, an assailant who was going after cops and, uh, he, this guy, Johnny Hurley, Sorry, I can hear the baby in the background. This guy, Johnny Hurley, uh, had a pistol with him and shot and killed the assailant before he could kill anyone else. He managed to kill one cop. So uh, so imagine Johnny Hurley, but imagine him being a little bit confused. So he's, he's there. He's hiding behind a brick wall for cover, which is what he was doing. The perp has just killed a cop by shooting him in the back with a shotgun. Now the perp has an, an AR. And he's headed back to a populated area. It's like a square with like shops and stuff around it. Um, now imagine, imagine Johnny's there. He's he's hiding. He's he's got his pistol. He's got cover. He raises his pistol. He's peeking around the corner. He's got the guy in his sights. He's got good sight alignment. Knows what he's doing. Focusing on that front sight. And this. This thought comes to his mind. Hmm. Is killing someone wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I have a moral dilemma. I don't know if I can kill because I think killing someone, I've heard killing someone is wrong, right? If that's what's going on in his head, he's probably going to die because the guy saw him and, and like he didn't have a lot of time to shoot. I guarantee that he wasn't thinking that because he acted decisively and just shot. Um, he was more than likely aware that murder was wrong, which is the initiation of the force uh, used to kill, right? Uh, he was aware that murder was a subset of killing, and he knows that by killing the perp, he's preventing murder because the perp was murdering and had the intent to do more murdering. So in this case, killing was right. Killing was the morally honorable thing to do, and that distinction matters. It matters that he had those ideas straight in his head. Now, he probably had them straight in his head because he trained with firearms and like thought through scenarios like this and was like, yes, killing is okay. And he's like, I understand when it's okay and when it's not okay and when it's murder and when it's okay. That's great. But many people had their lives saved that day because he didn't have moral ambiguity about that. He didn't have definitional ambiguity. He was not in some weird moral dilemma of, is killing wrong? And he was able to act. Uh, now, I know that sounds hyperbolic, that some people would get those confused. I sometimes have to remind myself that people do actually get this stuff confused. You would be surprised. Um, you even see it depicted in movies sometimes where people are like, huh, I don't know if I should kill the guy that just raped and pillaged an entire town because killing is wrong. It's like, it's just, it's moronic, but they get it wrong. All right, so let's do another one. This one comes, this example comes from Beverly. Uh, Beverly is doing a, she's not here today. She's not producing right now because, because she's playing piano in a, uh, I don't know, some local production, some Christmas related production in her town. And, uh, and she was telling me that after Monday's GoFefe break, so, um, on Monday, we talked about explicit material in school. I'm not going to use the word for explicit material because I don't want 
YouTube to pick up on it. But we talked about in a, some explicit material that was in some local uh, public schools. And there was a woman named Ellen who we interviewed who spoke about it. And Beverly was talking to her friend after the show about, um, about this issue of explicit material in schools and how these books were normalizing certain sexual behavior. And she was using the word normalize. They're normalizing certain sexual behavior. By the way, I'm, I'm going to take a moment and say, I am glad to see that most people in chat have no qualms about killing for self-defense. Uh, anyway, so she was talking about how these books normalize certain sexual behavior. And some basic bitch who was overhearing their conversation, she interrupted to say, well, that she, <laughs> she brought up the show Dexter because she's a basic bitch. Uh, and she wanted to talk about how Dexter normalized serial killing. And Beverly and her acquaintance, who were you know, fellow musician, whatever, who was having this discussion, they were forced to stop and have a discussion with her about Dexter and treat this woman's comment as if it was an intelligent contribution to the conversation. Um, when, in fact, it doesn't, re doesn't even warrant a response intellectually. I mean, it might socially you might have to be nice but uh it doesn't warrant an intellectual response it's moronic um and you might say that it's stupid right you might say it's moronic and stupid like i like it's a moronic thing to say but this i don't know this lady she might actually be smart it's entirely possible that she's smart it might not be her that's stupid but her concept of what the word normalize means because she's never thought about what normalize means Right. And by stupid as a concept, I mean, it's a floating abstraction. Right. So she probably had a vague sense that normalize meant feature. Something like that. So if there is a thing there that's prominent, then it's being normalized. Right. But of course, normalize doesn't mean feature. Right. It's it means to portray as an attempt to make normal. So in books in the books they were talking about, the sexual behavior was being normalized because critics of the behavior were the antagonists. There was no moral judgment of the behavior, even positive normal judgment possibly. Um, it was made to seem as if everyone is is engaging in, in it and that's okay. And you came away with a, a sense from the book that it was fine. In Dexter, it's not like everyone around him in the show knows that he's a serial killer and approves. I haven't really watched too much of the show lately. It's been a long time, but maybe there's a, a confidant or something in the show now. But in general, people don't know that he's doing this and they don't approve of it. Um, yeah, there's moral ambiguity in Dexter because the people are are bad that he's that he's killing. But even so, he's got to hide it. Critics of his behavior, if they knew, are not the bad guys. They're like the good guys, the people around him. He doesn't he doesn't find out that everyone is secretly a serial killer and like, oh, I'm just like everyone else. We're all secretly serial killers. Like the audience is not left with this impression that being a serial killer, serial killer is perfectly normal and acceptable, uh, and it's a fine thing to be. So. Only if you are either really dumb or more likely just don't understand what the word normalize means. If you haven't tied it to concrete and thought, what, what shows normalize things and what shows don't? What depictions normalize something and what doesn't? What does it mean to normalize something, right? And can I come up with concrete examples in my head, right, of normalizing, right? And I would say, oh, yeah, you know, um, I don't know. Rambo doesn't normalize blowing up gas stations and, and shooting at cops, 
and like, oh, I get it, right? That you know, <laughs> this you would understand what 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 things normalize what because you would have tied it to concrete. All right, that's an easy one as well. Actually, Greg the Baritone makes a good point in super chat or in chat. I mean, he says twenty four normalizes torture. I agree, based on what I've seen of twenty four. Um, 24 makes torture seem like it's a completely legitimate and um, useful and ordinary thing for uh, fictitious federal agents to be doing. All right. This next one is just for Josh Slocum because he mentioned it today on Twitter, so I figured we'd talk about it. This is this concept, extremist. So I guess someone called Josh an extremist. Um, he's so not an extremist either, but that's in a separate issue. So um, extremist is a term that I call, I actually call the word extremist uh, something called it conceptual propaganda. I, I call, I, I label it conceptual propaganda. Um, conceptual propaganda is, is a concept that actually, the concept itself is used to push forward a, uh, an idea that's false. Um, and the concept doesn't actually need to exist except for for the propaganda. So an example um, that I've used before, the concept of working class is Marxist conceptual propaganda. Um, and extremist uh, is conceptual propaganda for pragmatism. So anyway, someone, people said, hey, he's, uh, he's an extremist. Um, but of course, when people say that they really don't have any idea what they mean by an extremist. So in their ideas, they usually have some vague idea that, yeah, I don't know, extremists are like, like terrorists are extremists and maybe certain political positions that we should shun are extremists because it's kind of like a euphemism for supporting terrorism or despotism or some kind of evil, bad thing that that's extreme. Trump must be an extremist, right? Cause he said bad things. I don't know. Right. That's that's the level of of tying that concept to reality. But the concept of an extremist is actually morally contentless. Um, and if you examine, uh, you immediately find a hidden premise behind it. Let's actually do our dictionary thing. Let's pull up where is here's the Oxford English Dictionary. Let's pop this on screen. All right. Hey, extremist. Noun. This is one of these definitions that's annoying because we're going to have to look up another word. But one who is disposed to get to the to go to the extreme, or holds extreme positions, a member of a party advocating extreme measures. All right, so let's look up extreme. Uh, yep, there we go. Okay. So we can stumble through this here. Okay, outermost, farthest part from the center. Okay, the can extremity. Mathematics has got some terms. Okay, farthest or very far advanced in any direction. Um, going to great lengths as opposed to moderate. That's interesting, as opposed to moderate. Um, of a quality condition or feeling existing the most possible degree, exceeding degree. Uh, You know, this this one says severe or violent, but this is basically like 
very far away from normal. That's kind of what this, this means. So when you apply this concept of extreme to ethics or politics, you land on the golden mean fallacy, which is the fallacy that the middle is good. The middle is the good place to be, right? The in-between is good and the extreme positions are on anything are bad. Now that is actually an anti-principle. It's similar to the, the, the word radical, which is just used to vilify people, but I'm gonna call it, I'm, I'll, I'll say why I think it's an anti-principle. It's based on the assumption that principles are detached from reality. So um, it, it, the idea is that 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 a principled position on something, a principled belief exists in this alternate imaginary world, and that when you try to apply it to reality, you've got to temper it or mitigate it or dull it somehow um, because otherwise, it won't work. It will lead to, to bad results or horrible results because you would be too strict and stream, extreme. You're extreme in this. Um, and of course, that's only true for false principles, right? Principles that are actually derived from reality are not detached from reality. They are, in fact, shorthand descriptions for dealing with reality. That's what they are, right? And I gave the example previously of... of of how you might decide that lying is bad. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing now, but you would derive that from, well, you'd, you'd have to understand what we mean by lying. And, and uh, I would say it's uh, the attempt to gain a value through deceit, right? But, okay, so you understand what, what is meant by lying. You look at the world and you see consequences of lying. You look inward and you see the psychological consequences of lying. And you, you do some induction and you go, hey, actually, bad idea. Principles formed, don't lie. Um, it's not bad to take that to the extreme. It's not. Again, you have to understand what's meant by lie. Some people get confused and and uh, you have to understand this attempt to gain a value through deceit. Um, but it's not, it's not bad to take that to the extreme. That's not a bad thing. Here's an easier example, murder. <laughs> we just talked about murder, right? You can take that murder is wrong you can take that principle to the extreme as much as you want, provided that you know the difference between murder and killing. You can be an extreme non-murderer. That's a fine position. But this idea that um, that extremism is in and of itself bad is really just a form of uh, pragmatism. It's an anti-concept design, and it's and it's and it's a uh, conceptual propaganda, right? Designed to usher in pragmatism, right? It's pragmatism's evil handmaid. It's what it is, right? That's what it is. Now, we could say we can do. Remember, we do our definition thing. We could say, well, remember, we we do our definitions where we say this concept belongs to the category of this and it's differentiated from its, we can do that with extremist if we want. We can say an extremist, the, a political extremist is in the category of a, a person with political opinions, right? It's very clear, differentiated from other people by those opinions are outside of the Overton window. That's basically what it means. Oh, we don't like those. They're not, they're too far from the middle. 
needle defined in some mealy mouth, uh, you know, anti-principled way based on what CNN thinks, right? You could say an extremist in the intellectual sense, you could still use that, uh, that concept in the intellectual sense. And well, it's a, it's a category of a person with ideas, not just political opinions, a person with ideas, and they're differentiated by other people because they take their ideas seriously. And that's a problem. That's basically what it means, right? Um, so why do people use this word extremist? Well, because they don't, they don't, they don't know this. They don't think about it this way, right? They don't, they don't think what's, what's it like to be an extremely non-murdering person? Like I've taken don't murder to an extreme. Like they don't think about it that way. They just think of like extremists is just this floating abstraction. And you say it when you think someone's a bad person, right? They say it because it's a way for them to evade an argument while at the same time maintaining their own pretense of moral superiority. That's why they use it, right? It's a pseudo-intellectual or it's maybe even an anti-intellectual tactic, right? Basic bitches use it when they're LARPing as independent thinkers. That's what, when you hear someone say it, they're a basic bitch LARPing as an independent thinker. That's what they are. He's an extremist means disengage. He's a baddie. He's an unreasonable person because it's unreasonable to go to extremes, right? It means ostracize him, throw a label at him so that other intellectual posers know we should avoid him, right? It means that we, the insipid, brain-dead NPCs, don't have to talk to this person, right? He's unreasonable because he thinks that ideas should be taken seriously, right? And I, they can, you know, I, I picture one of these girls from Clueless going, whatever. Like, that's the person who uses extremist, right? They don't, ideas shouldn't be taken seriously. They don't like it. It hurts their brain to take ideas seriously. So, um, and they really don't know what they mean by extremist other than your argument makes me feel uncomfortable and now my panties are chafing. That's, that's what they, that's what it means to them, right? And nine times out of 10, if you push them on a, on a definition, um, for extremism, they either scream an ad hominem at you and run away or ghost you. But either way, they disengage because they don't like they don't like that, mostly. Um, so, and, you know, in fairness, most people disengage when ideas make them uncomfortable, right? But if you're watching this show and we're having these conversations, you know, you owe it to yourself to not disengage when something makes you uncomfortable. That's how you grow intellectually. That muscle strengthens over time that feeling of discomfort and like i've got to disengage you that you get over that and you're willing to kind of be like all right that's a crazy thing but i can entertain it i can engage with the idea and entertain it i'm not afraid of it right it doesn't give me the willies anymore like it yeah maybe it's made still wrong but i can engage with the idea right and if if you don't do that if you consistently disengage and run away that muscle atrophies, and then you become more and more sensitive over time to ideas that make you uncomfortable. So, uh, you know, the little butterflies in your tummy start acting up when someone, you know, misgenders you. All right. Another example. From, uh, actually, also from Monday's Cove Heavy Break. The word education. 
I'm actually not going to get into the actual definition of education because it's messy and it doesn't matter, but I'm going to show you how um, having no ties to reality or a uh, lack of a tether uh, leads to a massive confusion and you can just waste a bunch of time arguing. So education is kind of a messy one because people mean by education various things. Some people mean school, some people mean acquired knowledge, practice skill sets, appreciation of the arts, some combination of those kind of things, other stuff. Like they don't, and they probably don't mean any of those things very clearly. A lot of people mean different things by education. But on Monday, we were having a conversation around what books to have in a school library. As I mentioned, there's the explicit stuff that we were talking about. Um, but for the purposes of this discussion, that conversation could easily have been about curriculum choice or something else. But we, we'll stick with libraries. Now, many people, and I'm not saying Ellen, our guest, did this. I, that's, I'm not, this isn't about her at all. Um, she just made me think of it. The topic made me think of it. Uh, many people approach education with this idea that education can be divorced from politics. It can be non-political. You can have a political education, right? And they have this uh, they have this kind of childlike goal, which is uh, which is naive, which is, well, if we could just return to the education of yesteryear when everything was non-political, life would be great. When I grew up, it was non-political. Um, but if you understand, even just a little bit, how all the standard definitions of education are tethered to concrete reality, then you immediately see that that goal is a delusional fantasy. Uh, and, and your education was never apolitical. You didn't, no one has had an apolitical education. So let's just, let's look at book selection for a library or for a reading list or whatever as an example. Let's let's assume that your definition of education includes uh, the curation of books at a library or some kind of reading list. That's all we have to assume about it. We don't have to assume anything else, but it includes some kind of curation of something. Could be books, could be curriculum. We'll do books. Okay, well, by definition, curation means selecting some things to include and rejecting other things and having them excluded. There's a selection process. There is discrimination happening. That's what curation means. Okay. Doing that requires some standard. You have to have some method for making decisions. Even if that method's random, we'll get to random as an example, but you got to have some method of making a decision. You can't have no method. Decision has to be made. It's made by some method. And any method you choose cannot be non-political. Why? Well, politics is derived from ethics and ultimately from um, metaphysics and epistemology, which ethics relies on, right? But obviously an ethical belief gets implemented or not by a political system. Politics is, is downstream of a lot of other intellectual thought. Like a lot of things happen prior to politics. A lot of assumptions go into politics. A lot of ethical assumptions go into politics. Now, obviously, when that gets implemented in a political belief system, uh, you've got, you know, you have a reliance on those ethics in the politics that are manifest. I mean, a great example is, let's talk about 1930s Germany without using keywords that YouTube doesn't like. Let's talk about 1930s Germany. There's a group of people that are evil. 
That's that's the prevailing ethic, or at least a, an ethic among people in power. That's an ethical belief. That's not a political position. That's an ethical belief. Then it was implemented politically. And much evil was done, right? So politics rests on ethical assumptions. You can't say, well, it's not a political question how to treat this group of people. Well, it is. It's an ethical question, right? Um, and, and, you know, ethics rests on philosophical, philosophical assumptions. If you change the philosophy, you change the politics. So that's why, by the way, that's why the Marxists took over universities first. That's why they focused on universities, right? Because they could set the context for education. And the political climate just flows after that. They don't have to do much once they curate education. That's what they did. They curated education. So let's look. So let's look how, how even the selection of library books can't be apolitical. So as I said, we need some standards to choose. Let's just try some standards. Let's we'll try some silly standards that seem like they're non-political. You could say, well, I'm going to do a representative example of all uh, of books by authors from all demographics, and it's going to be proportionally representative by, of the author's backgrounds in my community. Well, that rests on the assumption that uh, your ideas are correlated to your race and your ethnicity. It rests on the assumption that worthwhile ideas are distributed equally amongst people in your community like that. Um, it obviously presupposes the whole idea of worthwhile ideas. Like there's assumptions in that selection process. And those assumptions are ethical assumptions that drive that, that can drive politics. That those are not non-political assumptions. Let's do something even sillier. I'm gonna select books based on the length of the book. That's apolitical. There you go. No politics involved in that. Well, you have to agree that math isn't racist and that two plus two is four, right? You, you can't think math is a evil oppressive tool of the white patriarchy. And you like, mm. <laughs> there's some assumptions there. There's some assumptions because you got to measure the length of the books with your math. So, okay. You could randomly choose books. Well, if you randomly choose books, you have to, that's an assumption that all books and therefore all ideas are equivalent. They're equivalently worthwhile. Again, there's some philosophic standard that worthwhile means it should be included and in whatever. Like, you could also say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Screw Carter and his stupid, silly ideas. I'm going to say I'm only going to choose books that are non-political. And I would say back, okay, well, uh, what's in the realm of political and what is not in the realm of political? Don't we have to agree on what's political and what's not? Now, as it turns out, that's a little bit circular because uh, <laughs> it's a philosophic discussion about what is in the realm of political and not political. And so we're going to get we're kind of into politics again already, right? You can't, you can't avoid philosophical premises and therefore you can't have a political education, no matter how specifically you define education, as long as, you know, 
you're not defining education as a cheese sandwich or something, right? I mean, if you define it in any of the normal ways, you can't have an apolitical education. Preparing a mind for a future in some way requires a perspective on what's needed for the future, which includes metaphysical and epistemological assumptions. It's not neutral on the question of politics. It can't be. And you don't have to, you know, well, if you don't tie this concept of education to the to concretes and think about the real manifestation of like how education manifests and what you would do, you could spend months and years arguing about how to achieve an impossible goal. You could be arguing over everything. How do we make this apolitical and blah, blah, blah. You're wasting resources, you're wasting time, and you're ultimately failing miserably because you cannot. But if education isn't a floating abstraction in your mind, if you've thought about how it's tied to concretes, if you've tied it to concretes, you immediately realize that, oh, there's a philosophical context that's antecedent to the questions of education. And, and that, you don't have to take my arguments here for it. Open your eyes and look around, right? Things that pass for education in Aboriginal tribes or in fundamentalist Muslim states or in Berkeley, right? They have nothing to do with things that you would say are education. Clearly, philosophic context, context belief systems matter. They matter. So you can't have you can't have an education divorced from that. And if you have that understanding, and if for you education as a concept is not a floating abstraction, it's tied to real concrete, so you understand how it's manifests in reality, then you start asking the right questions. You start saying, well, what's the philosophic framework that I want to use for the education? That's a valid, that's the right question. What is the framework? And then after you have the philosophic framework, you say, okay, well, what's the specific goal of education within that framework? It might be a narrow goal. I want to teach a person how to do, you know, pass the ham radio technician's license test, or it might be a broad thing. I want to teach a person how to be an autodidact. Both of those are operating with some framework um, philosophically, but you have to recognize that before you can make any steps forward. And so if you want to talk about education reform, you can't have a conversation about getting back to a political education that never existed. What you need to have is a conversation about what is the proper framework, moral framework, ethical framework, metaphysical framework, epistemological framework that we are, that you advocate personally, that you advocate for your fellow humans in society. What kind of culture do you want to live in? That's the framework. You got to start there. All right. I'll take a moment for a second. I'm just looking at chat for a moment. Hey, Dan says you passed the ham radio advanced tech class. Cool. I just did. I just did the the tech the tech one, um, and I got to go do general and then other ones. But uh, <laughs> someone in chat says burn all the books you disagree with. Right. Well, if your if your um, philosophical framework is Islam, that might be that might be something you would do, like especially you know fundamentalist. Um, same person, Dan Trainer, go Dan with his comments. Also says the great classics would be a start. Um, I like the great classics. Um, 
Yeah, I like the great classics uh, partly because of uh, yeah, maybe we don't have to get into it, but there there's a what's the name of that principle? Maybe Dan doesn't remember. Is it like Libby's principle or something? I don't remember. I tweet. I even tweeted about it today. I forget the name of it, um, but it's um, it's this idea that uh, let me look for the name. I gotta, I gotta find the name. I obsess over getting this wrong. All right. Well, maybe I'm not gonna find it, and I should let go. Yeah, I can't find it. Lindy effect. That's what it is. I should remember Lindy Hop. That'll help me. It's the Lindy effect. Um, and I think, uh, Taleb helped flesh this out, but it's, it, it's based on like a diner or something in New York. I don't know. There's comedy club thing in New York. Um, and the idea is that, uh, the longer some, someone has been performing there, the more likely they are to perform in the future. So it's kind of like old things, like things that have lasted are more likely to last. It's kind of this weird thing, which is one of the interesting reasons why reading, um, the great books of Western civilization is, is interesting because they've lasted, um, which means they're more likely to continue lasting uh, if you apply the Lindy principle. Okay. Let's do the last topic here, which is, oh man, I'm already an hour in. I'm sorry, guys, but buckle up. <laughs> All right. The last topic is related to Friday's Kofefi break. And this is this concept of good and bad. And when people say phrases like, this is bad for this, this is good for that. It's good for us, bad for us, good for society, bad for society. And good and bad are probably the most common floating abstractions um, because they're pretty high up in the hierarchy. So they're harder to connect. Um, and they're also massively overloaded terms, right? Good doesn't always mean morally good. It could be mean like advantageous or appropriate for some end goal. It could mean that you've done well, right? Um, so it's almost always a bad idea to generally say like X is good, Y is bad. I mean, not always. It depends on the context, but you should verify that you're being clear and precise. So let's focus on the moral the moral meaning of good. On uh, Kofefi Break on Friday, I got into a little debate with Mikey Harlow about the metaverse. And the conversation was whether it's good or bad. The metaverse is good or bad. I think he was, maybe eventually he said good for society or bad for society. And we didn't really have time to dive in and, and tease out what exactly each other was saying. But one thing was pretty clear, and that was the meanings of the words were not clear. Um, another example I've seen recently isn't really bad or good, but I saw this today and it just bothered me. So I'm going to bring it up because uh, it's related. <clears throat> It's the words right and wrong, which I guess is similar to bad and good. Brett Weinstein tweeted this. He said, right and left are a distinction we can no longer afford. It's right and wrong for the foreseeable future. Hashtag stand up and hashtag unify. Um, obviously, he used right and wrong, not bad and good. But wow. What a disappointment. <laughs> I mean, that is dangerously unclear. There's absolutely no consensus on what right and wrong mean in society. It literally says nothing without a lot of context, unless everyone else except for me 
uh, knows exactly what the hell he's talking about, it's a meaningless statement. So those are some of the people just saying like good, bad, right, wrong. So let's start with what good and bad are. We need to tether them to reality. Um, and we don't start with a concept of what they are and try and fit them in. We don't, we don't observe the attribute bad in a thing and then categorize it. Right. We don't look at, we don't look at a rock and like, Oh, there's badness in the rock. What's, what does, what is badness? Right. Because, because they're not intrinsic qualities of things. Good and bad aren't intrinsic qualities of things. They're moral evaluations. Again, we're talking about when they're used in the moral way. Right. We stumble on to the need for those concepts when we get into ethics and we start, and we, we need to start evaluating behavior. Suddenly we need a concept for our evaluation of someone's behavior. Right. Um, you know, as, as a side note, when we're, when we're thinking about fundamental concepts, we don't, we don't start with the idea of a concept that we already like and try and shoehorn it in or shoehorn it in. We're not like, Oh, I heard this weird thing that C.S. Lewis said, let's shoehorn it in. We start with nothing. We start with nothing and we figure out what concepts we need and why we're, we're building it from scratch. So often people um, will start, they'll come at things with these derivative statements like ethics is doing the greatest number of good for the greatest number of people. No, you can't start there. Yeah. You, ha you have to figure out what good is first, what it applies to, what the requirements for it are. If you later derive that fine, but you can't start there. Anyway, so good and bad are these moral evaluations that we, we find we need to categorize when we're evaluating behavior and moral evaluations to be very clear about this. They only apply to volitional action of beings capable of moral thought. That's it. They don't apply to anything else. You can only morally evaluate volitional action of beings that are capable of moral thought. So excluding metaphors, we don't say things like the twig is evil or the leaf is good, right? Or that guy who was having a seizure assaulted me. We don't say that. He didn't assault you. He had no control. It wasn't volitional. He hit you, but it wasn't assault. We don't say lions are murderous assholes because they eat gazelles, right? They're not, they're not volitional in that sense, and they're not capable of moral thought. They don't decide... I hate gazelles. I'm going to go eat him. Or even if they eat their cubs, if they eat other lions, we're not like, that's a murderous asshole of a lion. Like, nope. It's just a lion. Don't apply morals to it. Except for my cat. My cat is evil and horrible. Um, so anyway, so good and bad are value judgments here. And all value judgments have an implied, a couple implied questions. Value to whom and for what purpose, right? So when we say good, good for whom? And when we say for what purpose, we can kind of, what purpose or what standard? By what standard are we talking about here when we're talking about ethics, right? For the purpose of ethics. So what standard are we using? So when we talk about ethics, the implied context here is that if we say something is good for a human, we mean it's good for them as a human, a human qua human, right? There's, this is, in, this is an intrinsically good action for them, right? And, and what we mean by that is it's the, it's the ethical standards. It meets the ethical standards of a universalized, well, 
it meets some set of ethical standards. What I'm saying they should be, rationally, is a universalizable system of morality built on the ethical axiom that one's life is a standard of value. Okay, obviously, you can have different different ethical systems, and they use the word good to mean other things. But when we talk about something being good, we're saying it's good for a person as a person, as a, as a, as a person, um, not like a group of people or whatever. It's good for a person as such. And so when I'm saying as a person, what I mean is it's not good for Keith, but not good for Beverly and great for Jason, but not good for Carrie. It's good for a human as a human. That's what we talk about when we talk about ethics, right? And then we're using the ethical standards that are universalizable, right? There's this universalizable system of morality and it's built on an ethical axiom that one's life is a standard of value. We don't have to get into that, but you're evaluating you're evaluating it by some ethical standard. And, and we're using ra a rational ethical standard. So good and bad are these moral evaluations of volitional behavior and they're only applied to moral agents. They can't be applied to all volitional behavior of moral agents, right? Because some behavior of moral agents is amoral, meaning it's outside the realm of morality. It's not in the domain of morality, right? So if I choose to wear a blue shirt, that's not a moral choice, right? Assuming that there's not some weird context that ascribes meaning to my blue shirt and it means I'm you know, intentionally supporting a crazy person or whatever, right? There, I, there's plenty of choices I make that are amoral. So we often see behavior in others that bothers us and we want to condemn them as immoral, right? We want to like, oh, that's an immoral thing, right? Usually it's our disgust factor, especially conservatives have higher disgust factors. Usually we have a disgust factor. It's an emotional response. I don't like this, right? Before you can condemn someone as immoral or say that some action of theirs is good or bad, more um, correctly, stop. Ask, does that behavior involve ethics or are you just having a reaction about preference, right? It's fine to like things or dislike things aesthetically, or you can say that painting is ugly. You can say pineapple on pizza sucks, right? That's my official position on pineapple on pizza. Other people disagree with me. We can adamantly disagree. It's not a moral question, right? But it's, it's important to not conflate aesthetic judgments for moral condemnation. So what actions are in the domain of ethics? What what actions fall into this domain of ethics? What can we evaluate morally? Well, first, if they involve an interaction with another person, and that interaction involves the initiation of the use of force or fraud, which includes lying, uh, either directly or indirectly, which includes government, right? So like if I get someone to steal for me and I don't do the stealing, right? Okay, well, you can condemn that behavior. You can condemn that action as bad, right? Or as immoral because they are initiating the use of force or fraud or whatever. It, and it's in an interaction with another person. So that's like an external, it's their, it relates to their relations with other people and say, no, that's bad. You shouldn't murder other people. That was a bad action, right? Okay, fine, that's easy. Also, if the action is self-contained, right, it only involves themselves, or if it's a voluntary interaction with someone else, you can ask this question about it. Does the behavior run contrary to their stated values, right? So an example of this is if I claim to value my child's health more than anything else in the world, but I took the money that we needed for his cancer treatment and I bought a new Tesla with it instead, you could say that was bad. You bought a new Tesla, you you subverted the, the higher value of your child's health that you purport to care about. And also, 
if my actions are in line with my stated values, but my values themselves are explicitly immoral, right? And there's a couple ways those can be explicitly immoral. Um, I can be knowingly saying I want to violate the rights of other people, right? I want to be a dictator and, and I'm going to take actions to further that goal. Okay, well, that that value, that goal is itself immoral. So the actions that I'm taking are are bad. Or it could be that my actions are, again, these are actions that are in line with your stated values, right? It could be that my actions are in line with my stated values, um, but my values are kind of explicitly self-destructive or objectively self-destructive, right? We have to remember what the definition of objective was from a previous show, but um, that's kind of hard because it requires a lot of knowledge about the person unless they're like, unless they're being intentionally self-destructive, it's hard to say that thing is objectively self-destructive because you have to know a lot about them. An example is like you could condemn suicide, but because you could say, well, that's obviously self-destructive, but may, like, what if they're in like massive amounts of pain and like, there's actually a life affirming thing. They're going to have a, I don't know, moment with their family and, and take some morphine. I don't, I don't know. Like you could see, okay, well, you, maybe you can't, maybe you can't say that's self-destructive. Right. Um, and usually we don't have near enough knowledge to make that claim about someone. So those are the examples, those are the areas in which we're allowed philosophically, we can like make moral judgments, right? So this is, let's just review those just for a quick second. When their actions involve other people, are they initiating use of force or fraud, blah, blah, blah. That's obvious. If not, then you can say, okay, well, it's a voluntary interaction with someone else and it didn't involve that or it's a self-contained action, that whole category, I can still evaluate. There still might be something in there that I can evaluate. And that's, is my behavior running contrary to my stated values? Then that's bad. Or are my values themselves explicitly immoral somehow? Right? Okay. So we've said that, that good and bad are moral evaluations of volitional behavior. And as such, they can only be applied to moral agents. This means they can't be applied to nothing. You can't say that's good. That's bad. Obviously, you can say that if there's context around it, right? But if there's not the context that's clear, that statement has no meaning, right? It doesn't, for who, for what? Like, it doesn't mean anything. Um, it also means you can't apply, you can't apply this to objects without volition. Or thoughts, by the way. Thoughts aren't actions. You can call something a bad thought internally if you want to and say, well, I shouldn't have that thought, but it's not, you didn't really do anything bad because you didn't act, All right? It's your actions that get evaluated. But, and by the way, an action can be choosing to think further and plan. That's an action. Um, but what about if you say, okay, well, I'm not going to just say that's good or that's bad, but I'm saying this is good for society or that's bad for society. Um, and, you know, the, the conversation we were having on Friday was new about new technology. It was about the metaverse. It's good for society or bad for society. Now, obviously, if you're going to make that argument, you can't mean this in a moral sense because society is not a volitional agent and you're not really talking about behavior, right? So even if you're not using this, this thing in a moral sense, if you're not using the words good or bad in a moral sense, it's still a value judgment um, in the sense that you're saying good is more appropriate to some end goal or bad is less appropriate to some end goal. 
So if you're going to make that value judgment about something, you'd have to identify who's it good for and what's the purpose or standard. Like those are value judgments need to be answered that for whom, for what purpose. So if we if we pick up, I'm not, I'm not picking on Mikey, I'm, but I'm going to use the metaverse example. We pick up this idea of something that's good or bad for society, metaverse. Is it good or bad for society? Well, we need to answer the question, for whom? Good or bad for whom and for what? So when we say for society, is that an answer, right? For whom does the value judgment apply? It applies, you'd say, well, it applies to society. Well, what the fuck is society? Right? It's just a collection of individuals. They're co-located, usually, maybe under a specific political system. Do they unanimously agree on what's good for them? I mean, maybe if it's oxygen, but almost never, right? In society, uh, you know, it's not, it, society is not a consciousness that can have preferences, right? It's a collection. It's a collection of people. There is no Borg, right? Individuals have preferences or desires or goals. Society doesn't have a favorite pizza topping or a favorite religion, right? You might say, well, the majority does. It's the majority of people, right? Well, Math isn't ethics. Math doesn't, math isn't a substitute for thinking. You don't just say, wow, 51% of the people. It's not, math isn't a substitute for a consciousness. It's not a substitute for thinking. It doesn't, there's some obvious counterexamples, right? To, to the majority rules crap, right? Well, <laughs> slavery of the 49% is fine because the 51% vote for it, or even the 0.49% because the 99.51% vote for it. Slavery is wrong. Things don't become moral or immoral because a certain number of people, because a certain proportion of people want them to be, right? So when you say something is good or bad for society, the for whom part of that just breaks down. It doesn't mean anything. Same way as if you said we or us or we should or it's bad for us. Society is not a single consciousness. It doesn't have preference. It doesn't. Only individuals have preference. Now, you can solve this, sort of. You can solve this problem by answering the question, for what, in a particular way. You can say, well, if we answer the question, for what purpose, right? It's good for this purpose. Then we can kind of get to the for whom, because we can say, well, it's good for anyone who agrees with that purpose. And to hell with everyone else. That's who it's good for, right? It's a kind of a shitty answer, but it's honest. So if you say, well, I have a purpose, I, you know, I want society to become a, a dictatorship and Keith the Hat Guy is the leader, and these things are good for that purpose. And then we can answer the question like for whom and for what purpose? We say, okay, well, for whom? Anyone who wants Keith to be the dictator, right? For what purpose? For the purpose of Keith being there. Okay, great. Like you can answer that question. Um so sorry, I know, I know there's baby screaming in the background again. So for what? What purpose? Let's look at the metaverse. What is the metaverse good or bad for? All right? You Now, you could say, if you want to argue this, and you want to say, well, it's good for society or bad for society, you can't do that. We already talked about that. That doesn't work. But you could say, if you want to be precise, you could say, well, I have a plan for how people should interact and how society should be organized. And this piece of technology makes my plan less likely to come to fruition or succeed, or it'll come to fruition later. It delays my plans. 
And then you make some argument about why that is. Okay, or you could say, well, I have a plan for how society uh, should be organized and how people should interact, and this piece of technology helps me achieve that end. So a thing, a physical thing, like a piece of technology, can be good or bad for your designs on a society. It can be good or bad for a particular political goal or a business goal, which is probably what Mikey meant on Friday when he didn't get into it, but that's probably what he meant. And Mikey and I might not have shared political goals or even shared goals with respect to the culture war completely. We might. Right. Um, but when you say that something is good or bad, try and be clear about what you're talking about. Good for what? Bad for what? Good for whom? Bad for whom? What are you talking about? There is no society. You can't say something good for society. You can say it's good for my plans to have a, you know, functional republic. And here's why. Right. Um, One thing that's probably worth saying is, uh, despite my dislike of things like TikTok, because I'm an old person, uh, I'm generally very pro-technology, and I think we should embrace technology. Um, I'm really against a lot of the Luddite anti-technology stuff that's going on right now in response to bad ideas from big tech and bad management of big tech, and even big tech that is dangerous, which there is plenty of it. I view technology as, as tools that can enhance our productivity. They can enhance our lives. They can make our lives more enjoyable. And the best way to prevent being owned by technology and used by technology is to consciously learn how to use it responsibly for your own goals, not to avoid it and condemn it. Right? Imagine that we all avoided and condemned YouTube and Twitter and like we condemn them morally, but like we avoided them. Well, I'm not going to use that. That's bad. We couldn't have this conversation, right? That's why yeah, I know people have been joking. I've been looking at TikTok lately, thinking if we should do something with TikTok precisely because of this. We need to be having the conversation, even though I find TikTok distasteful, right? So I don't think it's a good idea to be opposed to technology as such. Being opposed to how it's used, absolutely. But... Being opposed to technology, I think it's a losing battle. Um, so, you know, facial recognition probably has some valid uses. <laughs> Big Brother's spy is not one of them, right? Uh, anyway, things can be good or bad for you, uh, or ba bad for your designs on society, but not good or bad for society, as I said, because there is no society. There's no unanimous interest. Only individuals have that. Um, and remember, we're out of the realm of ethics here. This whole conversation about the good or bad at the end here, we're meaning good in the sense that it's appropriate for some end. We're not meaning moral because you can't apply it. You can't apply it to a piece of technology. All right. Before we end here, I'm going <laughs> to... Someone says, and I think he's making a point not to, I don't think he's in agreement with this necessarily, but he says, love is good, hate is bad. But then he says, hating hate is good. Right. So love and hate, everything, all those things are just emotions. Emotions are neither good nor bad because they're not volitional agents. They're not behavior of a volitional agent. They're a feeling. Feelings aren't bad. Right. Feelings aren't bad. Or good. They just are. 
They just are. That's all they are. Might be self-destructive to indulge certain feelings, right? It might be it might be not a wise choice. It might be bad for you to indulge certain feelings. But as such, they're not bad. Just like empathy. Empathy's not good. Empathy just is. It can be weaponized. Uh, it can be used to destroy civilization. Or it can be used to do really great things. So hopefully you've come away from this episode. Uh, sorry, it's a little long, but hopefully you've come away feeling the need to tether your abstractions to concrete and be clear and precise. And hopefully this has given you a little bit of an idea of like what I mean by that and, and some examples of like, here's how floating abstractions cause confusion, right? And confusion is, is it's not just a waste of time. It's a distraction from actually making the progress that we need to make. Um, and hopefully you're a little more hesitant to use phrases like it's good for society or it's bad for people without providing more context and clarity. Those aren't useful phrases. Um, oh, Beverly's correcting me. It wasn't, it wasn't during practice. It was afterward at the bar. Okay. I got, I got Beverly's story wrong, but none of the, none of those details matter. So anyway, ask yourself, you know, when you're using, when you're using abstract concepts, especially ask yourself, what does like, what does what I'm saying mean in terms of concrete reality? How does it manifest itself in a concrete way? And if you can't answer that question easily, then you need to, to stop and tether your abstractions uh, to reality better. And it's hard. It's not easy. Right? If someone just runs up to you on the street and is like, you know, give me concrete examples of, uh, I don't know, violation of private property. They, they maybe rattling off as a heart or even something more abstract, abstract, uh, you know, give me concrete examples of, uh, I can't even think of that. Give me concrete examples of freedom. You'd have to define that better. You'd probably, you'd say, what do you mean? Political freedom, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's, it's, not super easy all the time to just come up with these examples. Um, but you need to be able to do it because if you can't, it means you're, you've got a missing link in your tether. And you can think of it as like a balloon that's got to be tethered to the ground. Reality is your ground. That's what matters. If you're having conversations out here untethered to reality, you're no better than a postmodernist who's sitting around just talking about crap and nothing that he says has any relation to reality, right? Or whatever, nothing Zer says. So, all right. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to look through chat. I think I'm done looking through. I don't think there's anything. Beverly, can you tell me if there's anything in chat I missed that I really need to address? Because I see that she's here now. Um, but I don't see anything in particular that I need to need to address. And I know some of this stuff is nerdy, guys. And it sounds abstract. And it is. It's abstract. Um, and sometimes it sound these conversations sometimes sound not tethered to reality. It's like, why are we talking about concepts? Right? It's because reality is falling apart around us. Like our, our things are falling apart. And the only people defending it, for the most part, not the only people defending it, the people arguing about it are mostly doing it in a haphazard, unclear 
ridiculous way untethered from reality, and it's not going to work, right? You've got, look at this, this tweet from Brett Weinstein. He's at the forefront of the war against woke. And his idea is that, like, it's, it's a war between right and wrong. It's like, uh, oh, my God. That's never going to save us. Clear thinking will save us. Clear thinking tethered to reality with reason. Like, that's the only thing that's going to save us. And it means we have to have these conversations. So, all right. Oh, someone wants to talk about Plato's cave. Maybe, maybe another day. Obviously, it's a little bit late to bring up something as in-depth as Plato's cave. All right. Uh, oh, I have another. Sorry. There's one more random thought before we go. I just thought this is, I randomly, I thought of this. I'm going to throw it at you guys, see what you think. Non-technical people tends to arrogantly dismiss the creativity involved in scientific discovery and technological development, which really annoys me. They, 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 they paint science and I don't mean science TM brought to you by Pfizer. I mean, actual science, they paint science and technology as like those are the uncreative people who just do like the boring math things. And they, they don't have a creative bone in their body. And like, that is so wrong and arrogant uh, it disgusts me. Nothing, no technology or scientific development happens without a tremendous amount of creativity. Um, on the flip side, technical people tend to arrogantly dismiss the rigor and organization involved in the creation of profound works of good art, right? They kind of think it just comes to them. People just inspire. They don't see a lot of the work and, and, and rigor that's involved. But I don't feel as strongly about that, maybe because I'm a technology person, but also... I think technology people can be forgiven uh, for this a little bit because in the science and tech domain, when something is wrong, when it's crap, it fails. You don't see it. It fails. But in the humanities, when something is crap, Jackson Pollock sells a painting for millions of dollars. So there's way more crap in the humanities. Because crap can survive because it's subject to people's whimsical judgment about its value, right? You don't get to do that if you're building a bridge. Like it either stands or it doesn't stand. You don't get to be like, well, it feels good. So I like the bridge. Like that's not how it works, right? It's not how it works when you program something. It's like, well, the code works or it doesn't work. It's You don't get to decide it's a beautiful piece of art. But in the humanities... Because there are uh, there should be standards, but there aren't. Because there are not any kind of even attempt at objective standards, and it's all just like whimsical emotionalism. There's a shit ton of crap, which is why technical people dismiss the rigor and organization involved. Because sometimes crap surfaces that actually wasn't rigorous and didn't have a lot of organization, but really fine good art does take that kind of um, hard work and rigor and organization. And um, anyway, all right. I know that was completely unrelated. I just thought of it. Next week, we are going to have, I think next week, we're going to have Dr. Stephen Hicks on. We're going to talk about um, postmodernism. He wrote a book. He's the author of uh, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Uh, we're going to talk to him about the postmodern roots of wokeism. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. So we're going to have a conversation with him. Um, as a reminder... 
please get extreme with that subscriber button. You're probably unsubscribed. You might be unsubscribed even if you think you are because that does happen. Um, so go double check and uh, attack that subscribe button with extreme prejudice. Thank you again to all those people who um, support us financially. I uh, can go to unsafespace.com to do that. And as always, I love suggestions, feedback. Also, I just kind of like, I want to know what you want to talk about because sometimes I was telling Beverly this the other day. Uh, I don't know always what needs to be addressed next, what you guys want to talk about. If I was unclear on something, if I've overcovered something, if I, if I, I missed, skipped something um, or whatever. So uh, please let me know. All right. I think with that, I can sign off. Have a good uh, night, everyone. We will see you. Actually, Beverly, you're in chat. Is there a uh, great reset tomorrow? There might be. Um, there might be. I don't know if there is one. Beverly will let you know in chat. But there's definitely a, a Kofefi break on Friday. And as I said, I will return next week, likely, with Stephen Hicks. So until then, have a good one, everyone. Take care. Thank you so much for watching. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by Dr. Fauci. All praise be to his name. The following co-conspirators have been asking too many questions. You know what to do. Once the Maxwell trial is over, we promise there will be no more pedophiles among the ruling class. Just one more job to combat the Zeta variant. Oops I mean the Omicron variant. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.